Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. I recently realized that I am completely confused by what appears to be a hallmark of, Christian, of, of human culture, not just of Christians, but of all humanity. Um, I don't know why I was late to recognizing this facet of civilization, and I've only recently discovered why I find it fascinating. But friends, I'm baffled by humanity's obsession with royalty. For centuries, people have been enamored with the monarchy. Even in America, it seems that while we are willing to fight and even die as a country for democracy, we still have a love affair with the concept of royalty. Think about it. For starters, did you know earlier this year, over 50 million people tuned in to watch the royal wedding, the wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? Think about that. 50 million people. That's a lot of people. The only show, the only thing that got viewed more than the royal wedding last year was the Super Bowl. Don't get me wrong. I love weddings. They're beautiful. I like to officiate weddings. My wedding day is the best day of my life. But like 50 million people is a lot of people. That's more people than watched the Braves make it to the playoffs, which is a travesty. More people should have enjoyed that with me. That's more people than watched Tiger win his first major in five years. That's more people than found out from the episode of This Is Us, How Jack Actually Died, which is a big deal. If you don't watch This Is Us, that's okay. Um, but if you're wondering why, like on Tuesday night, you hear crying from some other part of your house while one of your, while your spouse or a child watches This Is Us, it's because for about an hour every Tuesday night, people are going to be crying while they watch that show. Viewership is not the only thing that I think supports my claim that we're obsessed with royalty. Think about this for those of you who have daughters or who wants little girls. When you were to play and you had themes for parties and you had dress up, um, we probably, you probably can't remember the times you dressed up as Madam President or as Mrs. Business Tycoon. Um, but the theme that is most prominent is princesses, is it not? My little girl can't even speak yet, but we already call her a little princess, and she has princess-themed outfits. And this, of course, is kind of crazy because she's likely never going to be an actual princess, unless that she is one day, and I just get real lucky, and then I get all the benefits by proxy as being the father of the princess, which would be amazing. It could happen. Don't doubt my dreams. Our proclivity towards monarchy is even ingrained in our language, the way we talk, the things we name. Think about it. We, we play games like king of the hill, or in tennis, we call it king of the court or queen of the court. We call LeBron James and Elvis the king. Beyonce is queen bee. Aretha Franklin was the queen of soul. Michael Jackson was the king of pop. We get food from Burger King and Dairy Queen. But what does this matter for our sermon today? Like, wh why, am I, why am I obsessed with monarchy and royalty? And, well, for much of Christian history, our obsession with royalty has had a major influence on the way in which we see God. God as sovereign monarch is one of the most dominant themes in theology and in hymnody. 
You can turn in your hymnal, and there you'll find, Lead on, O King Eternal, all creatures of our God and King. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Come, thou almighty King. Contemporary worship songs do the same thing. King of my heart, only King forever. Sing to the King, King of heaven. And these are just a few of the songs that have King in the title. There are countless others where King is a featured part of the theme or the lyrics of the song. So in my preparation for this sermon on Christ the King Sunday, I went back to the Bible and, think, and was thinking to myself, you know, if kingdom and king and monarchy is such a big part of our Christian ideas of who God is, it must because it's chalked full of places in the Bible where that is so. And would you believe me if I told you that the theme of Christ being a monarch is much more sparse in the Bible than you might imagine? It's not non-existent. It's definitely there. There are places. I'm going to reference those. But, but to be such a feature of our language and our music and our worship and our conceptions of God, I expected a lot more from the Bible in terms of references to a divine monarchy. The word king appears in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible 2,149 times. I didn't count. We have Google. It appears, though, um, that 2,051 of those times was in the Old Testament. Only 98 times does the word king appear in the New Testament. Of those 2,000 plus times the kings are mentioned, very few, significantly, very, uh, very few of those times are actually in reference to God as a king. The significant majority is as a human being a king, in reference to King David, King Herod, King Cyrus, King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the extent to which the New Testament refers to God or Jesus as king. In Acts, there's a report about Christians from somebody else. So this wasn't even them saying, the Christians declaring Jesus as king. This is somebody else from um, the ancient Near East describing these new Christians. And it's, the Acts 17 says, They're all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. First Timothy twice makes a divine monarchy reference, saying, To the king of all ages, immortal and visible, will only God be honor and glory. Later, he says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings. The book with the most proclivity towards the divine monarchy is the New Testament's Revelation where he refers to, where John refers in his book to God as the king of nations. He twice calls God king of kings and makes several references to a throne. Outside the Gospels, that's it for the New Testament. And so I thought, well, surely the Gospels has this monarchical language filled in it. Nope, not really. They are kind of side comments in there, like in Mark, whenever the people mockingly call Jesus king of the Jews while he's hanging on the cross, so not a true recognition of kingship. John and Matthew both quote Isaiah on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into town, and, and Isaiah says, Tell of Zion, your king is coming to you on a donkey. And one of the wise men refers to Jesus as a king. The only other reference to any type of New Testament divine monarchy is our text for today, which is suspect at best if you're trying to assert some sort of royal office to Jesus. And yet, this actually might be the best picture of how Jesus understands his own royal position. I think this is the most appropriate passage for us to read and to hear from on Christ the King Sunday. And so I'm thankful that the lectionary passage today was this text from John's Gospel. In this passage, we're giving a much more definitive understanding of what Jesus thinks of his own kingship and place as an authoritative ruler. 
This passage begins with Pilate entering back into a room where he is examining Jesus, having some, some crossfire with Jesus, so to say. And, and Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me this? Are you asking me this because you think I am? Are you asking me this because somebody else told you I was? See, Pilate is trying to see if Jesus will incriminate himself. If you remember from the story, there's a lot of back and forth where Pilate is saying to those who brought Jesus to be tried, he said, I don't find anything wrong with this man. Like, no, there's definitely something wrong with him. You need to punish him. And he's like, I don't really know. And so maybe Pilate was trying to catch Jesus on a technicality. If Jesus were to decline to, um, to say that he had some sort of, divine, some sort of um, office as a king, had some sort of authority, that would be him breaking the law because according to the Romans, there is no other king other than Caesar. So Pilate's trying to catch Jesus off, and Jesus says, why, why do you think that? Pilate scoffs at Jesus' response, and he says, am I a Jew? He kind of bows up at Jesus and says, it's your own people, your own nation, the chief priest that brought you to me. What is it you have done? And then Jesus offers him sort of a wordplay. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, then my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate's response to this, whenever he responds to Jesus' claim that his kingdom is not from here, it's kind of like whenever um, you're talking to somebody, you can tell they're not listening. Because Pilate responded by saying, oh, so you are a king. It's like all Pilate heard was that first part. This is, I'm so guilty of this, you can ask Brianna. Brianna's my wife. She'll say something, and I'll catch the first thing she says and just, like, tune out the rest. And if there's any important details in that second half, I missed it because I'm already formulating my own thought and response to the first part of her comment. That's kind of what Pilate does, right? He misses everything else Jesus says about some otherworldly kingdomship and what, anything else that Jesus might have had to say. He just heard Jesus say, my kingdom, and they kind of tuned it out. So Pilate says, ah, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you said I'm a king, but it's actually for this that I have come, to testify to the truth. All those who hear my voice know the truth. This is a pretty famous interaction. Most Christians are at least mildly familiar with this scene that takes place in John's gospel. If you've been through an Easter season or two, you've probably heard it read before. But have you ever thought about what Jesus is trying to communicate about his royal office? Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of a time in history when a king was known for his willingness to downplay his authority and his role? What other time in history, or any time in history can you think of, that some king was trying to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm not that big of a deal, where humility was like the most well-known quality about a king? Never. Kingship has certain qualities about it that we associate with this position, right? Authority and power are not typically shied away from by those who possess it. When we think of kings, we think of power and army, land, strategic family unions through weddings, a propensity to wield authority for their own benefit. Monarchical rules have this similar MO throughout history, do they not? But when we think of Jesus, none of these things come to mind. Jesus rarely does anything with power other than give it away. 
His actions are never for his own benefit, but are on behalf of others. He doesn't accumulate wealth. He's not in a position of influence through strategic alliances of marriages. He has no land that we know of. And this is why the whole notion of Christ the King Sunday has always baffled me. Why do we have a whole day dedicated to lifting Jesus into a role that he seems to deny himself? Why are we constantly affirming this royal reality with such vigor and you know, such excitement in our various liturgical expressions? Crown him with many crowns. Kings and kingdoms bow down. And he shall reign forever and ever. To be honest, my, my confusion is really focused on us. In today's context, I, I don't have as much issue with people throughout history seeing Christ as king in this royal office because often music and theology all comes out of our experience and our own context. For most of Christian history, um, the places in which Christianity was most widely proliferated had kings. Whether it was Italy, Germany, France, England, these countries had kings, and oftentimes their kings weren't always the best people. And so it was helpful and even hopeful to believe that God was the king above these other cruel kings or these oppressive kings or these kings who were not acting on behalf of the people but on behalf of themselves. And so to, to see God in this royal office kind of makes sense at other points in history. But for some reason, we still today really like the idea of God as king, even though there's not many monarchies left in the world. You know, most Christian music is being written now in places like the United States and Australia, neither of which is ruled by a monarch. And, and we even split from Britain over issues of monarchy in order to establish a democracy. Kings aren't really a thing anymore. But still, we have this propensity to see God as its divine monarch in all of our modern liturgical expressions. I've been on this kick for a little while. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, which is why it was either just divine serendipity or irony that um, I was up to preach the lectionary passage on Christ the King Sunday. Because as I've been struggling through this idea of monarchy and why are we still so caught up on kings and kingdoms when we don't have any to pull from, the Holy Spirit does the Holy Spirit things. And I had this breakthrough the other day thinking about this sermon, thinking about our lives I think I figured out why we are still so compelled to see God as divine monarch, this need for royalty in heaven. It's a much bigger reflection of a theme in our own lives. I think our royal obsession stems from a very common place in each of us. I think we all want God to sit on a throne of supreme sovereignty because deep at our core, we all feel a sense of helplessness and often seem to be surrounded by chaos. When is life always perfect? When do you always feel in control? When do you think everything's going to work out perfectly? Maybe there are seasons, maybe there are times throughout the day where things feel all right, but there's a moment almost every day as they're not. Sometimes there's many moments. Sometimes it's a season where you just feel like life is spinning out of control and you can't grab a hold of it and you don't know what you do. You don't know what to do. 
But it's okay because there's a supreme monarch, a, a, a God who is the king who can tell us what to do. And when need be, step in and do these things for us. A king that we can pray to and will solve our problems. Kind of like a hybrid between this divine being and genie in a bottle. That God will just fix our problems because God is king. And this is not a new concept. We are not the first Christians to feel this way. For centuries, Christians have understood God as Deus ex machina. Deus ex machina is the problem-solving God. Like a machine can solve a problem upon command, God can fix whatever issue we have if we just pray. If you have a problem, pray to God and God will solve your problem. That's the job of a ruling, sovereign king. And I can't tell you how many times I wish things worked this way. How many times I find myself praying a prayer just like that in desperation and in need. And I'm not saying God can't do these things. God is God and I'm not and God can do whatever God wants to do. But I know that in my prayer life, I sometimes feel like life is out of control and I'm just saying, God, just come and fix this. Be the deus ex machina. Just, I've got this problem. You solve it. You handle it. I don't want anything to do with that. I, I wash my hands of this. God, you got this. But here's the problem with that. The problem is Christ as deus ex machina, sovereign king, who is perfect prescriber, then comes up against Christ as the Bible witnesses to who he was and is. While we're looking for a king who can fix everything so we don't have to suffer, the Bible tells us of a Christ who chose to suffer and calls his followers to do the same. The person we believe to be the king that we want to fix everything gave us the example of suffering and life and dying on a cross. We want deus ex machina, but we're given passio passiva, the one who suffers willingly. The passive passion, the one who willingly takes on hardship. And therein lies the irony of this Christ the King Sunday. We're desperate for a king to come fix things, yet the example we have is very different. And despite all these things, I'm glad we celebrate Christ as king. All the things I've said about kings and kingships and these things we associate with kings, Christ is still the king. And we believe that when heaven is fully made known here on earth, whatever the eschaton looks like and might be, that there will not be pain and suffering in the way we know it now. But what does that mean for Christ to be the king today in a world where there's still so much that is difficult? In a world where there's still so much suffering, what does it mean that Christ is king? The Bible tells us that he's a suffering servant. We're given a Christ that is with the people. And so Christ might not be the king we want him to be, or often think that he is, but that doesn't mean that Christ is not king. It just means it's time for us to reimagine what kingship really looks like when it comes to the divine. Jesus told Pilate there is in fact a kingdom, one in which he does reign. It just looks wildly different than anything we've ever imagined. Imagine this kingdom with me. Imagine a kingdom where there is no royal birth announcement, nobody tweeting about a royal baby having just been born. 
It's not like some scene out of Lion King where they bring Simba and show him to everyone. No, this king is born in the middle of the night in a stable, in a manger. No fanfare. Imagine a kingdom where the king does not hoard power for himself, but instead gives that power away to empower others. Imagine a kingdom where the wealth is not based on monetary gains, but on grace. Imagine a kingdom where people are not valued for what they can offer, but for what the king offers them. Imagine a kingdom where the king allows himself to be killed by those he came to save. Imagine a kingdom where love is the ultimate form of being. This is the kingdom where Christ reigns. This is the kingdom of God. And this is the king that we celebrate, the king who reigns by dwelling with and among the people, the king who rules by serving rather than being served, the king who first loves rather than seeking to be loved. This is the rule and reign of the kingdom of God that we are now charged with making known here on earth as it is in heaven. So may we be a people that celebrate our Christ the king, who came to suffer and also calls us into a life of servanthood. May we be a people that make that kingdom known. May we be a people who follow the example of Christ and bring about a world where peace prospers and love abides. And may we usher in the rule and reign of a kingdom that is beyond our imagining and wildly different than the world has ever known. May it be so. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are king now and always, that you do reign. Help us to see your kingdom as you have made it. Help us not to juxtapose our own ideas on who you are and what you're doing, but to discern the reality that is your presence to discern the ways in which you are calling us to live and to work and to be. We thank you that you are the king, that you do reign. Help us to see a world beyond our own imagination. It's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.